If you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to Nehemiah 13. If you don't, we'll definitely have it for you um, up here on the screen. Uh, and I just want to kind of pat myself on the shoulder on the back here. And also, uh, I want to say thank you and even give yourselves a round of applause. Man, we finished Nehemiah. We went through the entire book of Nehemiah. Uh, we did. We're t- as of today, we have done 13 chapters in 12 weeks. And if you know me, that's like kind of difficult to do. Um, and so that is a blessing in itself. So we have gone through the entire book of Nehemiah. Um, and if you want to go check it out, you can go back to our podcast. But uh, I'm just so thankful for this book. It's been such a blessing to me. And I hope it's been a blessing to you. Um, as we get ready to enter into Nehemiah, I just want to kind of say a couple of introductory things and give you some brief context text, what's kind of brought us up to this point. Uh, A couple of things about Nehemiah. Uh, Nehemiah is 13 chapters long, and so in chapters 1 all the way up to about chapter 7, Nehemiah rebuilds the walls of a war-torn, kind of desolate, broken-down Jerusalem, and he helps rebuild these walls in the face of a lot of opposition. A lot of people don't want to see Jerusalem thrive. They don't want to see Jerusalem rebuilt, but Nehemiah comes back as a man with a mission from the Lord. He mobilizes the people to rebuild what was once broken, and so he does that in chapters 1 through 7. And then chapters 8 through 10, there's kind of a shift. And so after the rebuild, a man by the name of Ezra, which is uh, Nehemiah's contemporary, he's kind of like a priest scribe. Um, after Nehemiah rebuilds the walls, Ezra comes in and he reforms the people. And he centers the community around the word of the, uh, word of the Lord. And so finally, we get to chapters 11 and 12. And we have Nehemiah and Ezra, um, one who's rebuilt the walls, one who's really kind of rebuilt the people in God's word. And they finally um, get together and they do a couple of final things. They repopulate Jerusalem. They rededicate the walls that have just been rebuilt. And they lead God's people into a time of joy and a time of celebration and really a great time of revival. In fact, if you were here last Sunday, you know that there were mass choirs singing on the walls. There were instruments. There were people that were full of joy celebrating what God had done. A city that had once been destroyed and broken by fire and war was now being restored. And I was just kind of thinking about it. If Hollywood uh, were to make a movie about Nehemiah, that would have probably been the best place to finish the story. In fact, there's probably no doubt that Hollywood would have finished it somewhere around chapter 12, verse 43. So let me read that to you. It says this. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And the women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Uh, That would have been a perfect ending uh, to a very powerful story. But um, as some of us may know, God endings and Hollywood endings um, aren't always the same. So here's a little bit of a spoiler before we actually get into chapter 13. Chapter 13 will end in failure. Um, God's people will fail to live out their identity, and Nehemiah will fall short in his leadership. But here's what I want you to see. We're going to take comfort. Amen? We're going to take comfort in knowing that the God who gave us the book of Nehemiah intended for it to end in the lesser so that his people would look for and long for something greater. And here's what I want to tell you about God's sovereignty. 
God's sovereignty is bigger than the mess that we make. He is in control of history in spite of his people's failures and missteps. I would say Christianity has made a lot of mistakes in history. But we can take comfort in knowing that he works all things for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we step into a book of failure, uh, we want to see what you want us to see. We want to hear what you want us to hear. So I pray that you would uh, speak, your Holy Spirit would move, and that um, your, my words will become your words, and that every heart, every mind will be ministered to for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So now that we kind of opened up with that little bit of that downer, um, one of the questions is, man, what happened? And how, how did this all happen? And so, again, more context. Uh, Nehemiah, who's kind of the leader of this entire rebuild, um, he spent 12 years governing Jerusalem. So he rebuilt the walls, and then he stood there, and he spent 12 years um, leading Jerusalem. But ultimately, what we're told in, in somewhere in chapter 13 is that Nehemiah makes good on a promise that he made way back in chapter 2, if you remember. And that promise was that he would ultimately go back to his career as a cupbearer to King Artaxerxes in Persia. And so Nehemiah will govern for 12 years, but ultimately he'll leave Jerusalem to go back to what he was originally doing. Now, we're not told how long um, he stood as a cupbearer. Uh, we're not told how long he was gone from Jerusalem, but here's what we are told. That while the cat was away, the mice began to play. Let's try that again. While the cat was away, good. All right. Uh, now, let me, let me share with you what went on in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 13. It says this. After some time, this is Nehemiah speaking, I asked leave of the king and came to the Jerusalem. It says, and then I discovered. And what I'm going to share with you today is there are four evils that Nehemiah discovered. And so he leaves Jerusalem and he spends time with the king. And ultimately he looks to the king and says, hey, I want to go back to Jerusalem. And I want to check on what has been built. And so he goes back and he discovers um, what I'm just going to say are four evils uh, that Nehemiah uncovers. And so for today's message... We're predominantly going to talk about these four evils um, that Nehemiah had discovered in chapter 13. And if you're taking notes or you're just one of those that like to know where we're going, here's what the four evils were. Number one is he sees and discovers that the people turn to legalism. He sees and he discovers that the people neglected the temple. And he discovers that they disregarded the Sabbath. And finally, they compromised marriage. And so I want to jump into this first discovery, the people turn to legalism. If you're with me and you're in the book, let's go to chapter 13, and we're going to read verses 1 through 3. It says this, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. I want you to pay attention to this last part. It says this, As soon as the people heard the law, they separated themselves from Israel, all those of foreign descent. 
they separated themselves from Israel, all those of foreign descent. Now, let me just stop there and explain to you what's going on. The Israelites, in their zealousness to keep God's word, they went beyond God's word. And this is actually what legalism does. Legalism overreacts, and then it misinterprets what God originally said. And I want you to notice this. Here's what the word said, that no Ammonite or Moabite could enter into the assembly. But in their overreaction, we're told that they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. And so what I want to do right now is I want to give you three problems with legalism. Three problems with legalism. And I'll explain what legalism is as we go through these issues. Number one, legalism makes us so extra. It makes us so extra. And some of you, maybe you, you're going to, as I begin to speak through some of these things, you're going to identify what you've seen in Christianity in the past. It makes us so extra. What do I mean by that? Extra rules, extra laws, extra boundaries. Legalism specializes in adding restrictions and prohibitions to places God never intended them to be. And if you think about it, a legalist, a person who is a legalist or a church that is steeped in legalism, they really try to out-holy God, which is really kind of ridiculous and we know is impossible. Now listen to number two. Because legalism is so extra, legalism turns Christian liberty into religious slavery. Because legalism is so extra, it turns Christian liberty into religious slavery. You see, we think we're protecting people from sin by being extra with our prohibitions. But all we're really doing is reinforcing an outward obedience to the law, but not an inward conformity to the love of Jesus. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I want holiness. Amen? I want to raise up, a, I want to be a part of a movement in the Bay Area of countercultural people that think different, that act different, that behave different. I want to see people grow into spiritual maturity and obey God's word just as much as anybody else. But I want that growth to take place out of a genuine response to the gospel of Jesus Christ and not out of surface obedience to extra laws. Number three, legalism turns Christianity into a points-based system and not a system that is dependent on the grace and mercy of Jesus. Legalism teaches we can earn God's favor by doing good works. And here's why this is so evil. First, it promotes selfishness. It promotes self. It causes me to boast and walk in a kind of spiritual arrogance. Second, it looks down on others. You see, I put others down that don't have the points that I think I have. And as a result, I don't love people into God's kingdom. I actually limit who can come in and who can't. When you're, when you're dealing with a point system, you're playing a game. And if you're playing a game, that means there's some winners and there's some losers. And if there are some winners and losers, what you're creating is a kind of religious caste system. There's the has and the have-nots. And what you fail to do is realize, what you fail to do is not realize that everybody was dead in their sin, that there's no one better than the other. And what you have is churches full of people that think their stuff don't stink. 
In fact, legalism is kind of like Black Friday, if you really think about it. Legalism is kind of like Black Friday. Well, what do I mean by that? It's, it's inevitable every year on the news after Black Friday, somebody gets hurt. Somebody gets trampled. And every once in a while, there's a real tragedy. Somebody even dies. And what happens is, is with Black Friday, is you create this, this godless desire uh, to grab and get this limited amount of stuff. And so people cram and run, and only those who are able to get there at a certain time and wait in the line and go through whatever it needs to go through are able to get it. With legalism, what we do is we, we act like God's love is only given out just to a certain few, and it's only for a certain few. And what we do is we, we run in, and we, we turn it into this giant competition. Petition and in the end, somebody just ends up getting trampled on. That's what legalism does. And unfortunately, that's what the Christian church does sometimes when it's steeped in legalism. Lastly, and I think this is worst of all, legalism, it promotes self. Uh, legalism um, definitely downplays um, others. And lastly, worst of all, it demotes Jesus. It demotes Jesus. Look, if my good deeds earn me a speck of favor with God... I have no need for Christ and his cross. If I can earn God's love, if I can do it on my own, then there's no need for what Jesus has done. My works, what I do, becomes more important than Christ's sacrifice. And I live a life of boasting and self-righteousness. I live a life arrogant and full of spiritual bondage. And I totally deny the beauty of the cross. The beauty of the cross. If the only, the only remedy for legalism is the gospel. Amen? Second thing that Nehemiah found that he discovered was they were neglecting the temple. Let me read this to you. In chapter 13, uh, we're going to read verses 4 and 5. It says this. Now before this, Elishib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by the commandment of the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions of the priests. Now, let me stop there. If you've been with us, you might recognize that name, Tobiah. If you haven't, not a problem. Um, Tobiah was an enemy of God all throughout this book. From chapter, uh, from chapter 3 all the way to chapter 12, Tobiah has been an enemy of God's people, and he's been an opposer of the rebuilding of the city. Check this out. Now he wants a high-rise apartment in the same walls that he was mocking. Now he wants to move into the same place that a couple of chapters ago he was mocking. Now, listen to this. Let's go to verse 8. I'm going to read verse 8 through 11. This is Nehemiah speaking. He says, I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back their vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So that the Levites and singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Again, let me break this down, what just happened. I think Nehemiah was dealing with what I would call three annoyances 
that really have kind of one big ramification. So let me tell you what they were. The first annoyance was this. The high priest, the gentleman that was the overseer of the temple, gave an enemy of God a luxury apartment in God's house. Annoyance. Number two, to make room for this condo, the priest cleared out chambers that were originally dedicated to storing instruments and offerings set aside for the worship of God. So not only is he moving the enemy of God into the house of God, but in order to make room for this enemy, he says, I'm going to clear out all of those offerings that are dedicated to the worship of the Lord, and you can have this space. Annoyed. Number three. Those called to minister and manage the temple, the Levites, abandoned it and went back to the fields to work. And we're told they did this because the people no longer financially supported them. Annoyed. Now, Nehemiah was angered because God's house was being neglected. But let me tell you why this is an even bigger deal than you and I might think. Maybe you're not like me, but have you ever wondered why God is so meticulous with the temple in the Old Testament? Like almost petty. And I didn't want to use that word because God's not petty at all. But if you read the Old Testament, he is very meticulous about what goes where and why it goes there. There are different kinds of offerings, different kinds of sacrifices, different kinds of celebrations. There were different kinds of priests, different kinds of singers, gatekeepers, different kinds of daily duties that needed to be managed. What was it about the temple, and why was this such a big deal? Let me explain. You see, in the Old Testament, under what we call the Old Covenant, the temple was the people of God's connection to the presence of God. Are you with me? How they managed the temple, how they managed it, how they kept it, uh, was a direct reflection on how they valued their unique relationship with God as his people. Now, knowing this, you and I can better understand the true tragedy of this moment. God's people were no longer valuing God's presence. Neglecting the temple literally meant neglecting their worship. And as I was reading this, I couldn't help but get convicted. And so I'm going to get a little challenging with you this morning. So I hope you let me challenge you. But I wondered to myself, what would this look like for us on this side of a new covenant? You see, they were in the old covenant. We're in the new covenant. So what would this look like for us? Is it possible for you and I to neglect our worship in the same way God's people did here in Nehemiah. You see, for the Israelites under the old covenant, it was the temple and its systems. For you and I under the new covenant, it's literally a lifestyle of devotion. Let me say that again. For the Israelites in the Old Testament under the old covenant, it was the temple and its systems that brought worship. For you and I in the new covenant, it was literally a lifestyle a lifestyle of devotion. And so here's the challenge. Are we, are you and I cultivating a daily connection with God through prayer? Are we deeper? Are we growing deeper in our intimate knowledge of who he is by reading his word? Are we honoring him 
by giving to him our time, our talent, and yes, even our treasure. I don't say this to be legalistic, (laughs) but I say this so that we can examine ourselves. Are we, in loving response to the gospel, embracing and participating in a life of worship? Here's what I want you to get. In the Old Testament, the temple system was the center of worship. In the New Testament, Christ's sacrifice, his death and resurrection has has done away with with the temple system. When Christ died and rose from the dead, there was no more need for the temple and its systems. Did you know that? And so in the Old Testament, the temple system was the center of worship. In the New Testament, Christ's sacrifice has done away with that system. Now, because of Christ, you and I have direct access to the Father, even in our own living rooms. How much more should this produce worship in God's people? Yet, how much more does this also expose our idolatry to other things? You understand the precious blood of Jesus remove the veil of separation between his people and him. And now the people no longer have to go through a temple system to experience God's presence. They can enter into this presence directly. That sacrifice of Christ should cause worship inside of God's people, but it should also expose our idolatry to other things that we deem to be more important. I want to look at the last two evils, which are disregarding the Sabbath and compromising marriage. And I want to look at those together. And then I also want to note the kind of hilarious yet tragic way that Nehemiah responds. Some of this is going to be a little inappropriate, but we're going to work through this together. In fact, I thought about skipping it, but I wouldn't be true to what God has called me to do. Number one. The, the first thing, well, this will be the third thing they uncovered. They, Nehemiah uncovered that the people were disregarding the Sabbath. Let's look at verse 15. In those days, again, Nehemiah speaking, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. Now, we're going to skip to verse 16. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. You can tell that he's really frustrated over this. This was money over righteousness, right? Let's make an extra buck by working an extra day. It doesn't matter if this day is holy to the Lord. Now I want you to look at how Nehemiah responds. In verse 17, he confronts the nobles. In verse 19, he shuts the gates and stations guards at the wall so that no foreigners could come in and actually sell on the Sabbath. But guess what happens in verse 21? Foreigners still show up to sell the night before the Sabbath. So look what Nehemiah does. He says to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Some of you guys probably still buy into that type of philosophy. He's not talking about prayers, right? You come from like kind of a Pentecostal tradition. You know that when somebody says, I want to lay hands on you, usually Mama Patty's going to come and pray. Right? 
Amen. But here's the deal. He's not talking about prayer. He's literally talking about getting violent with them. But just wait, there's more. Then he finds out that they're not only disregarding the Sabbath, but the people of Israel are beginning to compromise marriage. Let me explain. In verses 23 through 24, it says this. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So let me clarify really quickly why this is a sin before the Lord. This is an issue, um, but it's not about interracial marriage. Amen? Otherwise, I'm in trouble. A lot of you are in trouble. That's not what it's about. Um, This is more about the danger of a believer entering into a covenant relationship with a non-believer. Nehemiah pointed it out that even Solomon, right, who was the wisest king kind of on the face of this planet, he took for himself foreign wives. And the result of him doing this was him establishing pagan temples in Jerusalem just to satisfy his spouses. And the result here in chapter 13 were children that were kind of raised in a confused culture. And ultimately rejected God to worship idols. Now, here's what I want to say. For the people of God that were carrying the promise of God in the Old Testament, God was sovereign over everything. And you have to realize what God was doing throughout the entire Old Testament. He was guiding his people from a family to a tribe that would ultimately become a nation. He was guiding them into a particular place. So they would ultimately bring a blessing to the rest of the world. God isn't about, it's not like God rejects the foreigners. What he's trying to do is he's trying to protect the covenant until the Messiah comes. From this family line that would ultimately become a nation, Jesus would come, who would then be crucified and sacrificed. He would live a perfect life. He'd be crucified. He would experience God's wrath so that the sins of the world would be taken away. And so it was important for God to protect this line to the point where the Messiah would come. Are you with me? And so he's really meticulous about protecting them throughout the entire Old Testament. Now, this is going to be kind of another public service announcement. Nehemiah is about to get cray. Uh, He's about to go a little bit crazier than what we've seen before. Listen to verse 25. I can't believe he wrote this about himself. Like, I might have left this out. He says, I confronted them and cursed them, not so bad, and beat some of them, it's kind of bad, and pulled out their hair. It really happened. Don't laugh, guys. And pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons for yourselves. Can you imagine getting beat? (laughs) for marrying or even dating a non-believer. Like, there's no way that Nehemiah would make it as a single adult's pastor in any church in America. Like, that's not the way we do things. But let me give to you the bigger picture. In the same way that the temple reflected God's... In the same way that the temple reflected how God's people valued God's presence. Please listen to this. The Sabbath and marriage reflected how the people valued God's word in their personal lives. So we see in chapters 1 through 3, we had a legalism problem. 
But now here in chapters 15 and verses 15 through 24, we have a license problem. And this is a universal truth. In every godly community, whether it's Israel in the Old Testament or the church in the New Testament, the gospel will need to actively combat the presence of religion and irreligion or the presence of legalism and compromise within every church. Let me explain. There's an ancient church father by the name of Tertullian, and this is what he said. Just as Jesus was crucified between two thieves, so the gospel is crucified between these two errors. Legalism says we have to live a holy, good life in order to be saved. License says because we are saved, we don't have to be holy. Legalism says we have to live a holy, good life to be saved. License says because we are saved, we don't have to live holy. You ready for this? Both can coexist in the same community, and both can cause great damage to God's people. But the gospel reminds us that our obedience is grounded in loving response and not in the law. We obey not to be saved. We obey because we're saved. We respond to the beauty and grace and, of, and mercy of Christ in our lives. And our response is dedication to him and his words. I love this quote by Timothy Keller. It says this, the gospel is neither religion nor irreligion, but something else entirely. A third way of relating to God through grace. Because of this. We minister in a uniquely balanced way that avoids the errors of either extreme and faithfully communicates the sharpness of the gospel. We're going to go ahead and prepare for worship, and I want to conclude uh, this morning with a few things. As I read through this entire chapter, and I thought to myself, there's no way we could skip it. I've already promised that we would make it through. As I began to read through this entire chapter and as I finished, I thought to myself, how, what is a fitting way to conclude a chapter that seems to be full of failure? But here's what I want to do as we conclude. I want to share with you four things that I see clear now because of Nehemiah 13. Four things that after I've read and studied through chapter 13, there's four things that I personally see clearer now. And I think maybe you might agree uh, because of Nehemiah 13. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God didn't try and hide the mistakes and failures of his people. Although I'm not quite sure I would have included the pulling hair and beating people out. But here's what I'm saying. When I read the Bible, and some of you may read, there's a lot of failures in there. In fact, one time I was ministering to a, a person of another religion, and one of the things that he said about the Bible is that your men of God are so unholy. And I said, I thank God that they're so unholy. I thank God that the men in the scriptures were real just like you and I, and they had moments of glory and moments of failure. I thank God. I thank God that our Bible doesn't hide some of the mistakes that have been made. As much as I want to skip the part about Nehemiah beating his people and pulling out their hair, 
Um, God did not skip it, nor did he hide it. Every failure and every mistake was recorded for a purpose. So here's the four things that I kind of see that I want to share with you this morning. Number one, I see myself in the people. I see moments of victory and revival in my life only to be overshadowed by reoccurring cycles of sin. I see myself in the people. I see myself taking two steps forward in my faith on Sundays only to take five steps back the rest of the week. I see myself in the people. And here's my biggest takeaway. I see that a list of moral obligations, rules, do's and don'ts, they have no real transformative power over my life. I realize I need something more powerful than law to keep me. I see myself in the people. The second thing is I see myself in Nehemiah. I know I'm crazy. Please don't leave the church. I promise. I don't want to get violent. But I feel the real frustration of a spiritual leader zealous about God's word and angered over the sin of his people. I see myself in Nehemiah. And there's a temptation to overreact. And in my overreaction, there's a temptation that the enemy wants to disqualify my leadership. Trust me, I see myself in Nehemiah. And it's here I realize that my leadership alone is helpless to bring about real lasting change in the lives of the people that I pastor. I see myself in the people. I see myself in Nehemiah. Number three... I see our church. I see inspired church. An imperfect people battling with both the bondage of legalism and the immaturity of compromise in their lives. Occasionally experiencing moments of joy and revival. I see inspired church in chapter 13. And I realize that neither more rules nor more liberty will turn this church in the church that God has called it to be. I see Inspired Church and I realize that more rules nor more liberty will help to turn this church into what God has called us to be. I see Inspired Church in the people. But you know what else? I see hope. I see hope. I promise you. I see hope in this scripture. Let me tell you why. I realize we are where they longed for. We are what they looked forward to. This story was meant to be anticlimactic because everything in the Old Testament is looking ahead and anticipating something greater, something better. The temple, the city, even Nehemiah himself are all only shadows of what will finally be realized in Christ Jesus. What do I mean by that? We're promised a new Jerusalem with no walls that means everyone's welcomed even the foreigners like you and I we're promised a new creation without spot and blemish because we've been washed in the blood of Jesus and a new temple a temple not made with stone or human hands but a spiritual house made with living stones a people of every nation washed clean by the blood of Jesus taught to follow him and guess what 
a temple that can't be destroyed because it's being laid on the chief cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus says, you tear this temple down and I'll bring it back up in three days. He wasn't referring to the physical temple. He was referring to his body being resurrected for you and I. And in his resurrection, he makes a new temple. But again, not with hands. But a temple made from you and I, all laid on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And guess what? Everywhere I saw myself failing, Jesus succeeded. Everywhere I saw the people failing, Jesus succeeded. Everywhere I saw my leadership failing, Jesus succeeded. He's the ideal follower because he kept the law perfectly. You and me, we can't even keep it half the time. He's the ideal follower. He's the ideal leader. He's the ideal leader. He doesn't beat the people because of sin, but he takes a beating because of their sin. He's the ideal leader. And if I would just place my trust and faith in Jesus, this historical figure who resurrected from the dead, he'll begin to transform my present, and he'll give me a hope that goes beyond the grave. He'll give me a hope that goes beyond death. If I just put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he's the ideal follower because he keeps the law perfectly. He's the ideal leader because he doesn't beat his people for sin, but he allows himself to be beat for their sin. And if I put my trust and faith in him, it gives me a hope that goes beyond the grave. And for that, I give my life. I give my devotion. And I give my worship.